On a chilly day in the year 1917, Nebraska rancher Harold Cook was doing what he often did in his free time. He searched. You see, his father's property was rich with fossils, and it wasn't unusual to discover one just jutting out of the earth. Relics of a different time and world. But on that particular day, his search had brought him to the banks of the Niobrara River, and it was there that he made a discovery. Nestled in the sandy riverbank, Harold found a small, preserved tooth. He had uncovered thousands of ancient bones since he was old enough to walk. But this fossil was unique. This fossil looked vaguely human. His discovery would fuel a nationwide debate about who we are and where we came from. I'm Ben Bohal. And I'm Nick Batter. And this is Neglecta. This, this part of Nebraska certainly doesn't feel like stereotypical Nebraska, you know. It really doesn't. I was thinking about earlier, actually, when we were coming up here. So we're here in Neal Woods and Ponca Hills, up on a ridgeline, where some of the first archaeological digs in Nebraska took place. In the late 1800s, a group came up here searching for the remains of Chief Blackhawk, war chief of the Sauk tribe. Unfortunately, they were hundreds of miles off track. They left with little to show for their efforts, except for a few large holes dug into the hilltops. And those holes went undisturbed for over a decade. And then a local farm kid hunting for wild turnips discovers one of these holes and decides to check it out. He hops down in this huge hole way over his head and begins kind of digging away at the earth with a stick in his pocket knife. It doesn't take long before he finds a skull, a person's skull. And he thinks, well, this is cool. Brings it home, puts it on the wall in his room as a decoration. So word begins to spread about these hills near the river with burial mounds and bones. And it isn't long before an amateur archaeologist shows up, a guy named Robert Gilder. He sets up shop and begins a systematic excavation of the largest hilltop in the area. He becomes obsessed, spending all his free time digging around, and he finds pottery and tools and old campsites. And he finds burial sites and human remains. My name is Rob Bozell. I'm a state archaeologist with the Nebraska State Historical Society. Before people like Gilder, at least in Nebraska, the objective was to just collect stuff. Go and dig up Indian mounds and Indian villages to get lots of pots and arrowheads. Where I think these guys and some others started to be more interested in answering questions about these people. How they lived, who they were, who their ancestors were, you know, that kind of stuff. Gilder keeps digging deeper and he finds more pottery and tools, and bones that seem much older than any bones he has ever found before. Needing an expert opinion, he sends a collection of his best specimens to New York, to one of the leading anthropologists in the country. And this is where we meet an intriguing guy, Henry Fairfield Osborne. Back then, evolution was not the settled mature science it is today. So Osborne is not just an anthropologist, he's a Darwinist, and he's actively looking for the missing link as a way to prove evolution. So when he gets this package from Gilder, he thinks this is it. For years, this prehistoric skeleton, dubbed Nebraska Man, was believed to be the oldest human ancestor in North America. However, as time goes on, 
and more excavation takes place, the scientific community realizes that Osborne had jumped the gun and Nebraska man is removed from the textbooks. They were finding these fairly deep skeletal remains and maybe for some reason because of the character of the, the cranium they thought were really, really super early and maybe even proto-human. They're not. They're just simply wrong. So Gilder's discovery in Nebraska was not some pre-human ancestor. But nonetheless, the excitement of the idea still gave him regional fame and allowed him to travel across Nebraska to give anthropology lectures. One of these lectures brought Gilder to the ranch house of the Cook family, hundreds of miles west in the Sandhills, to what Gilder called the world's greatest fossil beds. They had been discovered just a few years before. The Cook family's son, Harold, had grown up searching for the bones of ancient mammals. What makes agate so significant is you have this really high concentration of a few species, and then the quality of preservation of the bones really quite good. That's Fred McVaugh, former park ranger at what is today Agate Fossil Beds National Monument. Um, Harold was uh, encouraged in his curiosities. He's able to help his dad draw paleontologic interest to the fossil beds then like any kid you know i mean he's he's watching these professionals and he's he's being invited uh, basically by them to participate to be an equal partner so we've been Walking the path here at Agate, and we're in. Where are we at? Are we in the Carney, the Carney Quarry? Yeah, this is one of the Carnegie Quarries, one of the the two oh, major Carnegie excavation Quarry. sites. Oh, look at that! Yeah, it's just amazing. Um, I mean, I don't know what it looked like when they were first discovering everything here, but I mean, there's there's still bones. Just yeah, you can see one embedded right in the rock. This is just just unbelievable. Well, down, down here, I mean, this is just a, this is a national park, so obviously this isn't, you know, a place that people are actively excavating. But, um, you know, even just us crouching down here and looking very carefully, you can see just the, the wind and kind of aeolian forces have, have eroded some of this, you know, ancient ash, and you can see bones. I mean, yeah, you can see can. what they would have discovered back then. Yeah, see right there. And clearly somebody, I mean, even, you know, a hundred years ago with basic tools, would have, you know, been able to carefully excavate entire bones, whole bones. Pretty incredible. It's almost kind of surreal. Harold Cook lived at the foot of the fossil beds in a home he called Bone Cabin. There, he oversaw the excavation of hundreds of complete skeletons, of prehistoric rhinoceros, bear dogs, and miniature camels. So it might seem strange that he became so energized when he found a single fossilized tooth near the river. To Cook, this tooth doesn't belong here. It doesn't look like it belongs to any ancient prairie animal. It looks like a human molar. Scientists visiting his property agree. So Harold Cook carefully packages the tooth and, like Robert Gilder years before, 
mails his prize discovery to Henry Fairfield Osborne in New York. By this time, in addition to his anthropology efforts, Osborne had become a leading voice in Darwinism, advocating not only for evolution, but for hypotheses of social Darwinism. Osborne's most vigorous opponent was William Jennings Bryan, three-time presidential candidate and noted populist from Nebraska. So when Osborne gets a package from Bryan's home state with potential evidence of evolution, well, he's ecstatic. Unlike Gilder's skull fragments sent previously, Harold Cook's tooth fossil was found in fossil beds alongside long extinct animals. Dozens of scientists crowd into Osborne's museum in New York to examine the specimen. Together, they conclude that the tooth does not resemble any known Miocene creature, but instead to some previously unknown ancestor of man. Osborne jokingly suggested naming this new hominid after creationist William Jennings Bryan, but he ultimately names it after Harold Cook. It received worldwide attention as Nebraska Man, and newspaper illustrators quickly drew elaborate scenes of this ancestor and the world it may have inhabited. News of this discovery quickly reaches William Jennings Bryan, who is incensed. He's an ardent creationist who sees evolution as inconsistent with the Bible. But more than that, Brian blames social Darwinism as a root cause of the First World War. He writes lengthy editorials in the New York Times, criticizing the discovery, the tooth, and Osborne personally. Brian uses his political capital to convince legislatures and school boards around the country to outlaw teachers from giving lessons about the ancient Nebraska man, or evolution in general. Osborne does not back down. He publishes lengthy rebuttals, almost taunting Brian. Doubling down, he even publishes advertisements looking for teachers willing to defy Brian's laws by teaching evolution in the classroom. A biology teacher in Tennessee responds, is arrested, and the resulting litigation is remembered today as the Scopes Monkey Trial. Monkey business, monkey business down in Tennessee. My Lulu made me fall, I'm monkey after all. Monkey business, monkey business, now I see it all. When she rolled her eyes, it was no surprise how she could tantalize. One of Brian's first moves in the trial is to prevent Osborne from testifying as an expert and to prevent Harold Cook's fossil from being admitted into evidence. Brian succeeded and avoid facing scientific evidence in court. But many of the retellings imagine Brian being confronted by the scientific community, like in the 1960 film Inherit the Wind. How old do you think this rock is? I am more interested in the rock of ages than I am in the age of rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Page of Overland College tells me this rock is at least 10 million years old. Well, well, Colonel Drummond, you managed to sneak in some of that scientific testimony after all. <laughs> in reality, Brian did confront the scientific community. As the Scopes trial was taking place, Brian was engaged in a second proxy war with Osborne, publicly debating the authenticity of the tooth in a series of national editorials. Osborne chided Brian for hiding from a small tooth from his home state. Brian painted Osborne as a hack, attempting to transform a small stone into an imaginary ape. 
Litigating his position in the court of law and in the court of public opinion, Brian unexpectedly dropped dead less than a week after a verdict in the Scopes trial. A verdict on the tooth would be less forthcoming. By this time, the fossil was heralded as the million-dollar tooth. When a lab assistant handling the fossil heard of its price tag, he was overcome by nerves and dropped it. The fossil shattered. After a careful reconstruction involving a bottle of glue, the tooth was x-rayed and examined by scientists from around the world. However, confidence in its origins began to wane. Paleontologists returned to Agate, intent on finding a skull to match the tooth. They succeed, but the skull they find does not belong to an ancient hominid. It belongs to a prehistoric pig, a species once common on the ancient prairie. So, like the Nebraska man imagined by Gilder, this second Nebraska man also proved to be a case of mistaken identity. misidentified but you know in truth the the time period that we're talking about there was tremendous competition amongst different museums those great discoveries could lead to great exhibits those great exhibits could lead to financial windfalls patronage which would support further excavations so just at the time period there was a lot of competition which led to you know maybe some rash claims, and even even earlier paleontologists had uh, fallen victim to the competition among, between each other. And What makes Nebraska Man, of course, prominent as it is, is just the, the political context at the time and its coincidence with uh, the, the build-up to the Scopes trial and stuff like that. Today, radiometric dating, a better fossil record, and rigorous peer review has given us a more accurate idea of our evolutionary history. Probably the, the earliest artifacts we have from Nebraska are about 13,000 years old. And, and these are ancestors of modern Native Americans. Um, no doubt about it. That's been proven very recently by DNA. Neither Gilder nor Cook can be credited with pulling a new species of man from the prairie. But they can be credited with helping to mature the natural sciences. While men like Osborne and Bryan politicized science to win short-term arguments, Gilder and Cook remained self-critical, questioned assumptions, corrected mistakes, and kept digging. And in doing so, they have helped us to glimpse into the past as it truly was. As for the million-dollar tooth, unearthed in Nebraska, shipped to New York, shattered, repaired, scrutinized. The fossil that once belonged to a pig, then to a rancher, now belongs to the American Museum of Natural History, where it is buried again, off display in permanent storage. From agate fossil beds in western Nebraska, this is Neglecta. This episode was made with the help of Fred McVaugh, Rob Bozell, and the National Park Service. Original music composed by Mark Nickel. You can check out his entire catalog at soundcloud.com slash marknickel. 
And you can join Nick and I as we continue to explore the forgotten stories of Nebraska and the Great Plains. Visit our website at neglecta.com, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and find us on Twitter at Neglecta Podcast. As always, thanks for listening.